Executive Director of Penn American Center. I think most of you probably know that Penn is an organization of 2,600 writers who work to advance literature and a culture of literacy and to defend free expression. Um, Penn also, as is the case tonight, organizes uh, literary events of all kinds, many of them at the New School, and we would love to put you on our mailing list, and I think many or most of you have probably been handed cards, which we invite you to return to us, and if you have an email address, please include it, because we'd love to, to let you know about these events as they come up. Um, this evening is one way that Penn uh, is trying to respond to the fact that we think some of the most important work on behalf of literature is being done every day by thousands of readers who get together with one another regularly in their homes to talk about books. Uh, there has been a, an estimate that uh, a half a million Americans are involved with book groups, and I think the importance of this development has been recognized by publishers and booksellers who now produce uh, materials and guides and logistical support of all kinds for reading groups. Um, authors, too, have put themselves in the service of this movement and often, it seems, devote a lot of the time uh, that they spend on tour to interacting with book groups uh, all across the country. Uh, so tonight's program is an effort to take this movement one step further. We thought it would be interesting to have a book group for authors and to invite the public to join in. But rather than talk about their own work, which poses obvious problems, uh, we thought we would ask them to read and talk about very new books and uh, that they and their audience would then uh, be able to respond to for the first time without waiting for the critics to tell us all what to think. I think we have a very interesting panel tonight. I should stress that they are not uh, uh, an existing, they are not a, a book group and I think in most cases may not have met one another before, so uh, you'll take that into account. But we do have tonight uh, Catherine Harrison, who is a novelist and uh, the author of Exposure and Poison, as well as the memoir The Kiss. Dale Peck, uh, who is the author of the Martin and John, The Law of Enclosures, and his most recent book, Now It's Time to Say Goodbye. Ron Rosenbaum, who's a writer and journalist uh, who appears regularly in the New York Observer and other publications and the author of the recent Explaining Hitler, The Search for the Origins of His Evil. And finally, Meg Wallitzer, who is a novelist. Uh, her books, uh, This Is Your Life and Hidden Pictures, and uh, the uh, forthcoming Surrender Dorothy, which will be appearing in April. Now the books, uh, for which I should also say that the members of the group are not responsible. These choices were made at Penn by me. Um, are Hanif Qureshi's Intimacy from Scribner's. Qureshi is the author of My Beautiful Laundrette and Sammy and Rosie Get Laid. Um, and Sue Miller, While I Was Gone from Knopf. Uh, Sue Miller's other titles are The Good Mother, Family Pictures, and The Distinguished Guest. Since many or most of you will not have had a chance to read these books, which are both just out this month, um, we thought we'd give you a taste of each one. And for that purpose, we have two actors, Walt Dunlap and Cynthia Barnett. Thank you. From Intimacy, 
by Hanif Qureshi. It is the saddest night, for I am leaving and not coming back. Tomorrow morning, when the woman I have lived with for six years has gone to work on her bicycle, and our children have been taken to the park with their ball, I will pack some things into a suitcase, slip out of my house hoping that no one will see me, and take the tube to Victor's place. There, for an unspecified period, I will sleep on the floor in the tiny room he has kindly offered me, next to the kitchen. Each morning, I will heave the thin, single mattress back to the airing cupboard. I will stuff the musty duvet into a box. I will replace the cushions on the sofa. I will not be returning to this life. I cannot. Perhaps I should leave a note to convey this information. Dear Susan, I'm not coming back. Perhaps it would be better to ring tomorrow afternoon, or I could visit at the weekend. The details, I haven't decided. Almost certainly, I will not tell her my intentions this evening or tonight. I will put it off. Why? Because words are actions, and they make things happen. Once they are out, you cannot put them back. Something irrevocable will have been done, and I am fearful and uncertain. As a matter of fact, I am trembling and have been all afternoon, all day. This, then, could be our last evening as an innocent, complete, ideal family. My last night with a woman I have known for 10 years, a woman I know almost everything about and want no more of. Soon we will be like strangers. No, we can never be that. Hurting someone is an act of reluctant intimacy. We will be dangerous acquaintances with a history. That first time she put her hand on my arm, I wish I had turned away. Why didn't I? The waste, the waste of time and feeling. She has said something similar about me, but do we mean it? I am in at least three minds about all questions. I perch on the edge of the bath and watch my sons aged five and three, one at each end. Their toys, plastic animals, and bottles float on the surface, and they chatter to themselves and one another, neither fighting nor whinging for a change. They are ebullient and fierce, and people say what happy and affectionate children they are. This morning, before I set out for the day, knowing I had to settle a few things in my mind, the elder boy, insisting on another kiss before I closed the door, said, Daddy, I love everyone. Tomorrow, I will do something that will damage and scar them. The younger boy has been wearing chinos, a gray shirt, blue braces, and a policeman's helmet. As I toss the clothes in the washing basket, I'm disturbed by a sound outside. I hold my breath. Already. She's pushing her bicycle into the hall. She's removing the shopping bags from the basket. Over the months, and particularly the last few days, wherever I am, working, talking, waiting for the bus, I have contemplated this rupture from all angles. Several times I have missed my tube stopper. I found myself in a familiar place that I haven't recognized. I don't always know where I am, which can be a pleasurably demanding experience. But these days I tend to feel I am squinting at things upside down. I have been trying to convince myself that leaving someone isn't the worst thing you can do to them. Somber, it may be, but it doesn't have to be a tragedy. If you never left anything or anyone, there would be no room for the new. Naturally, to move on is an infidelity to others, to the past, to old notions of oneself. Perhaps every day should contain at least one essential infidelity or necessary betrayal. 
It would be an optimistic, hopeful act, guaranteeing belief in the future, a declaration that things can be not only different, but better. Therefore, I am exchanging Susan, my children, my house, and the garden full of dope plants and cherry blossom I can see through the bathroom window for a spot at Victor's where there will be drafts and dust on the floor. While I Was Gone by Sue Miller. It's odd, I suppose, that when I think back over all that happened in that terrible time, one of my sharpest memories should be of some few moments the day before everything began. Seemingly unconnected to what followed, this memory is often one of the first things that comes to me when I call up those weeks, those months. The prelude, the long, beautiful, somber note I heard but chose to disregard. This is it, silence between us. The only sounds, the noises of the boat, the squeal of the oar locks when my husband pulled on the oars, the almost inaudible creak of the wooden seat with his slight motion, and then the glip and liquid swirl of the oars through the water and the sound of the boat rushing forward. My husband's back was to me as I lay in the hard curve of the bow. He sat still a long time between each pull. The oars dripped and then slowly stopped dripping. Everything quieted. Sometimes he picked up his fishing rod and reeled it in a bit, pulling it one way or the other. Sometimes he recast, standing high above me in the boat, the light line whipping wider and wider, whistling faintly in its looping arc across the sky before he let it go. It was a day in mid-fall, well after the turning of the leaves. The weather was glorious. We always took a one day a week off together, and if the weather was good, we often went fishing. Or my husband went fishing and I went along, usually with a book to read. Even when the girls were small and it was harder to arrange, we managed at least part of the day alone together. In those early years, we sometimes made love in the boat when we were fishing, or in the woods. We had so little time and privacy at home. It was a Monday. The day off was always Monday, because Sunday was Daniel's busiest day at work and Saturday was mine. Monday was our day of rest. And what I recall of that Monday that fine fall day, is that for some long moments in the boat, I was suddenly aware of my state in a way we aren't often. That is, I was abruptly and most intensely, sharply aware of all the aspects of life surrounding me, and yet of feeling neither part of it nor truly separated from it, somehow impartial, unattached, an observer, yet sentient of it all, deeply sentient, in fact, but to no apparent purpose. If I were trying to account for this feeling, I might say that it had something to do with the way I was half lying, half sitting on several pillows in the bow, the way the curving walls of the old rowboat framed a foreground for my view as they rose away from me. I saw them, these peeling wooden inner walls, and then my husband's familiar shape. Above him there was the flat, milky blue sky, and sometimes, when we were close enough to shore, the furred, nearly black line of the spruces and pines against it. In the air above us, swallows darted, dark, quick silhouettes. And once, a cedar waxwing moved slowly through them, layers of life above me. Below, I could hear the lap of the deep water through the walls of the boat. As a result, let's say, I felt suspended, waiting between all these worlds 
and part of none of them. But this isn't what I really believe. I think the sensation came from somewhere within me. We feel this sometimes in adolescence, too. Surely most of us can call it up. And then there's the burning impatience for the next thing to take shape, for whatever it is we are about to become and be to announce itself. This was different. There was, I supposed, no next thing. I had felt something like this every now and then in the last year or so, sometimes at work as I tightened a stitch or gave an injection, the awareness of having done this a thousand times before, of surely having a thousand times left to do it again, of doing it well and thoroughly and neatly, as I liked to do things, and simultaneously of being at a great distance from my own actions, or at home, setting the table, sitting down with my husband to another meal, beginning our friendly evening conversation about the day, the house quiet around us, the old dogs dozing under the table or occasionally nuzzling our feet, a sense suddenly of being utterly present and also simultaneously far, far away. Now I stirred, shifted my weight. My husband turned, no aspect of his face, not dear to me. Hurting, he asked. And with that, as quickly as it had come over me, the moment ended. I was back, solidly in time, exactly where we were. It was getting chilly. I'd been lying in the wooden boat for several hours now, and even though I had pillows underneath me, I was stiff. I had uh, a bad hip. Replacement had been discussed, though everyone said I was too young for it. I liked only that part of the problem, being too young for something. A little, I said. We'll head back. Are you sure? I've got two reasonable ones. I'm a happy man. He began to reel his line in. I turned and stretched. How nice to be a happy man, I said. He looked over his shoulder at me to get my tone. It is nice, he said. And I meant it, I answered. As we rode back, as we drove home, I found myself wanting to tell my husband about my feeling, but then not knowing what to call it. The shadow of it lingered with me, but I didn't say anything to Daniel. He would hear it as a want, a need. He would feel called upon to offer comfort. Daniel's a minister, a preacher, a pastor. His business is the care of his flock. His medium is words, thrilling words, admonishing or consoling words. I knew he could console me, but consolation wasn't what I felt I wanted. Can everyone hear me as I speak into this? No. no. I'm afraid it's too high or something. Um, I drew the sort of straw backstage, so I get to start things off and just by asking one question, which is, which, um, because we assume most of you haven't read the book, um, we're going to start by summarizing the book and uh, see where we go from there. So you want to start with The Good Mother, since we just heard it, and go backwards? You mean what, the synopsis? What? Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, I, th I mean, if both books are about marriage and its discontents. Um, mm -hmm. I'm struck by the difference between the two of them hearing that passage, um, the urgency of the first, the kind of leisureliness of the second, which is sort of actually, you know, the experience of marriage within the book is, is quite done, done quite similarly. Uh, the Hanif Qureshi book is about a man who, as you can hear, is about to leave his wife and children and can't wait. 
Um, it's not just that he doesn't love his wife anymore, that he really loathes his wife, and he cannot wait to get out of the marriage. And it's his sort of justification for that and his self-loathing. The Sue Miller book um, is about a woman kind of looking back on her life, um, look, kind of taking stock of her marriage, talking about something that happened a long time ago, a very traumatic event that has now come back to haunt her and affect her marriage and possibly make her leave her marriage. Both books are first-person narratives, and uh, as I was listening both to the readings and to you, I was thinking that um, they both are about betrayal and they are about intimacy, and the only, the realest intimacy that exists in both books, which are very different books, is the intimacy between the first-person narrator and the reader. The reader is actually the only person who has the full witness of the personality, the, the desires and dissatisfactions of the narrator. Uh, each narrator, in the case of intimacy, the narrator is completely estranged emotionally from his wife. but. Uh, Joe, the narrator of the Sue Miller novel, also goes through a period of estrangement, but the reader is party to it. The reader follows the person through um, love, infatuation, uh, sort of cathexis, and then drawing back. Um, and that's the, that's the only sort of contract that the narrators don't break, really, right. is that with the reader. Um. I guess I thought that what they had in common maybe was uh, shame. In the, <coughs> in the Karishi book, I think it's a kind of pretend shame. He's leaving the, uh, the, the wife, but um, he uh, you know, spends a lot of time talking about how guilty he feels, although you don't feel his guilt is very real, or I didn't anyway, um, you know, as you know, someone who considers myself a highly self-pitying person. I thought this was like a shallow self-pity. Um, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and um, in the, the Sue Miller book, I should say that, you know, I think that opening passage, while it was read really well, does a disservice to the novel, because I think it gets much better after that. There was a kind of strained, fine writing in that opening passage on the pond with the rowboat and the oars dipping in the water. But really, and then after that, you know, I think almost immediately you're with the uh, this woman, Joe, in her veterinary clinic, and um, there's a kind of reality and a connectedness in her dealing with the dogs and the cats and their patients and the, the fear and the guilt um, that goes on, which I, I, I found myself quite caught up with. But to return to shame, I mean, uh, the shame sort of obvious in the Karishi. I think in the uh, Sue Miller book, there's a kind of, uh, I don't know if anyone else felt this, was a, uh, a displaced shame about the 60s. It turns out she did this terrible thing she thinks, still, uh, in the 60s. She left her husband in 1968, and she moved into a group house, which you know, suggests, at first, connotations of orgy. But really, it was just you know, five people, or I think, living together, unmarried. And uh, something terrible happens. And I don't know, I, still f I, I felt this novel, in some ways, both these novels demonized the 60s. It was a uh, 
you know, they had their tiny little rebellion and they've been living with the shame of it ever after. Am I, anyone else feel that no, way? I, I want to ask you, we, we, you both have now alluded to the terrible traumatic thing oh. that happens and is, are we trying to preserve a sense of mystery about the... This is <laughs> well, it's not like the crying game. Yeah. <laughs> no, <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> what happens in the, in the Sue Miller novel is um, this is actually her first marriage and she's very young. She's in, in her early 20s. I think she's 23. And, uh, and she marries the man that was her high school sweetheart and she's been married to him for, for a few years and she doesn't love him and she's bored and rather than deal with it constructively, she just up and one day leaves and she goes to Boston. Um, I think, are they in rural Massachusetts? I forget now even where they were living at the time. But she goes to Boston and she um, answers an ad for, an, for a roommate in a house which she refers to as a kind of commune but which is really just an apartment oh. share. Um, and, uh, and she gives a fake name for, for reasons that she's not even particularly sure about. Um, and it's maybe, in, in some ways, the most psychologically complex thing she does in the, in the entire novel, except for one thing that she does later on, which is she decides to give a fake name and, and to live with these people for, for an unspecified length of time. And one of the persons who's living there is a young woman called Dana, and Dana has an attraction to her, which is not quite specified it's one of those where we could sort of pretend it's lesbian but really it's it's not it's just kind of she really likes this other woman being in the house because everyone else is is male and they and look alike they're almost like sort of and they look alike yeah. they're, they're some it, kind it of doesn't she really strain yeah. toward the end of the novel didn't you feel to make us feel that dana was so special but what was special there was nothing about special about yeah. that dana sort of represented her capacity for passion which of well, course was why she had to be I, I, I murdered. Brutally murdered. She was yeah. murdered. Yeah. So don't go too attached to Dana. Because, right. I mean, this, this book actually is about giving in to passion, trashing your marriage, forgetting your responsibility to your kids, and following your passion. Whereas this book is just the opposite. The, the Dana, who I actually did think was supposed to represent her passionate side, you know, I mean, she sleeps with whoever she wants to, right. she doesn't, um, is, I mean, it's a morality play because this girl is hacked to death, um, and then she comes back to haunt, or the whole murder comes back to haunt the narrator, the murder of passion, and then it right. sort of rears its head up again. And Just it, when her life is really good and domestic, right. and the 60s are banished. And then, but don't worry, because passion is once again squelched. And well, and that's, that's <laughs> the, that was, the, the, for me, the great burning question, because what happens is 30 years have gone by, and, uh, and our, our narrator, Joe, is now living at home and her last child has just gone off to college and now she's spending her days sort of being a veterinarian and, and healing and nurturing poor little animals and sitting on rowboats with her husband. And along comes one of the men that she used to live with um, in the house, um, a man called Eli. And, and for, for no discernible reason, she decides that perhaps they should have an affair. You know, he was sexy back then, and, and he's kind of a little overweight now, but he still has something kind of authoritarian about them, and, and uh, he's successful, and that, that's kind of attractive. Well, he brings and, back the amazing Dana. And, right? and, and, well, and of course, he calls him, and well, she doesn't know that at the time, though. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm echoing here. So, and, and for no discernible reason, she thinks that, well, maybe we should have an affair. And what happens then is they meet at a hotel in Boston in the bar, and Eli tells her that he killed Dana because she spurned him. And in fact, she just didn't care. And in a moment of rage, he killed her. Um, and it's, it's completely like, oh, yes, you act on your passion, and, and it's bad, and you should go back to your dry, 
you know, safe Daniel, the minister who doesn't actually even believe in God. Um, and, uh, and, Is that and, true? Well, that's the big speech. That's, that's actually where I fell out of the book when he said that we couldn't personify God and God isn't really omnipotent and there's probably not even a heaven, but it makes us all feel better when we go to sleep. And that's, right, that's about the point out. where I began <laughs> sort of... Well, I thought the male characters in Sue Miller's book really were not believable. They were, that there's this notion I've found again and again in certain books by women, which women create the men they wish existed in some way. They all have really fine bones in their face. That's something that's, I don't know, really important to women. Um, they listen. They really listen. They really listen. No, but, but he's like, he's a minister, and he's gentle, and he's funny, and he's sexy, too. They have a sex life that's very passionate. And, totally, and not very believable. No. <laughs> that, no. There's that scene that... There's like a double masturbation scene. Oh, right. And I thought, well, this is not happening. Yeah. No, I really... I just know those two people really doing that. Well, what did we think of... Jesus over the bed. What did we think of Daniel's sermon on memory and loss? I couldn't make up my mind. I thought it was sort of Polonius-like in a way. But on the other hand, I mean, he gives a sermon at, at, at some point, this big set piece in which he talks about the death of one of his parishioners and how... Um, pain is, or memory is how pain, or, no, I'm sorry, pain is how memory inscribes itself and, and memory is really important and I don't know, I, I felt it was, I actually found myself kind of moved by it but then like a little embarrassed by being moved. I think, I think you can be moved by it as writing but then you have to remember that people don't speak that way. Even in sermons? Or? I don't know, it, I mean, it's, it, was an art, it was an artful thing. Yes, I'm sort of on the fence about it because I think the writing of it was actually... And then the, the children okay. critique it. The children say, well, Dad's bogus when he speaks that way. And so, so she includes a kind she of... She covers herself that yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, um, I, thought, I thought maybe, you know, this was the heart of the novel and it was sort of something worth thinking about anyway. And actually that becomes... I mean, that's when he says that that, that is the only afterlife, really, or that is that's how right, we yeah. continue. And memory also becomes God. That's in right. A way. He talks about how, yeah, his grandmother or someone doesn't believe in an afterlife, and no one believes in an afterlife anymore. So, so we just have painful well, memories. He's a very unchristian minister, actually, because yeah. memory is the only um, way people live on and in pain, other people's painful memory isn't my idea. He's kind of a counselor. Right. He, he's, the, he's that new breed of. of those those strange churches where he just kind of gets up there and makes you feel better about your position and and doesn't sort of offer the great promise of eternal life or anything but just that well you know memory is a consolation um, and I, I you know I, I which is weird it too because I think of religion as being about mystery and he's actually the great demystifier uh -huh. you know which is didn't you think that that Karishi was sort of sermonizing too, though? I mean, in, in you know, he's he sort of injecting himself. It's, I think it's really sloppy because, you know, the, there's the narrator we're supposed to dislike because he's so creepy and selfish and so pitying. But then Karishi, every once in a while, sort of breaks into a kind of sermonizing thing about, oh, we had our fun in the 80s and, you know, with ecstasy and, and it was because of people in the 60s that we did it. And, you know what I mean? There's this kind of. And all sorts of philosophical things kept getting yeah. pulled into it. Yeah, I mean, did you, I mean, did you, uh, I mean, you said you thought this, the Karishi was about passion. Did you feel this guy was in, his passion was in any way genuine or, or interesting? I felt that he was, I felt that the narrator of this book was both um, shockingly selfish and 
and sort of honest about his selfishness, and in some ways, sort of, yeah, at peace with his selfishness. Mm -hmm. I mean, that there was a lot of um, sort of broadcast agonizing about what he was doing, but from the beginning, he'd actually decided, I'm out of here. And um, I was actually, the, the thing that I was, I was more troubled by, um, then I was bothered by his contemplating leaving this woman that he was estranged from, because she was clearly estranged from him too, was his total heartlessness towards his children, which seems sort of odd in a way. Um, yeah, I don't know anybody who's broken up a marriage and left kids behind without genuine Agony. But I See, think he doesn't even seem to. And it never is. It never is true. You know, it's not. It's not even. He says their lives will be ruined. You know, but yeah, that's the same with her. It's like it's not yeah. even. You know, he just accepts the fact that he's weekend dad at this point, and and um, that he he is clearly he's leaving them behind, and that's kind of an interesting betrayal, um, because he he professes to love the children, and there's this kind of extended scene when one of the children wakes up in the middle of the night right. while he's still pacing, and he changes the diaper and, and, and all that and, and oh I love you so much and will you do the same for me when I you know yeah. need this and but 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 you know the effect on them he doesn't really contemplate well, and yeah I didn't really I, I was I was confused by his reaction to the children because I thought that his details of being with children were actually quite realistic and, and yeah. they seemed unusual but I, th I felt that he kind of planted certain things like the line that was just read daddy I love everybody was just to milk the pain of how could you do this to a child? And I think, why is he doing that? Is he trying to make the narrator just seem like so horrible? Yeah, I you think know? so. I think yeah. he's really pushing it to, to a kind of showy contemptibleness. And so, uh, and then the author, then, then we're supposed to think, oh, Hanif Karishi, what a sensitive guy. He sees through men, you know? Don't you think? Well, it's a way. Or I he's as, he's as horrible, you know, he's so horrible too. And he pre presents Karishi's himself. horrible too? The, the narrator, oh, yeah. Jay, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he's so, yeah, Jay, who will be referred to now with, yeah. quote, like, no, but the notion that he treats everyone with such contempt, I mean, he has such contempt for his wife, the, wo the woman he lives with. At one point, he goes into the bathroom, and she has these, this uh, cap medicine cabinet of expensive face creams made of sheep placenta, and he opens one, and he sticks his penis in it. And, I mean, it's like the total way of just saying, you know, I hate you to his wife in some way. Mm. But if he shows himself as being contemptible, it's like he protects himself in a, yeah, in a peculiar way. Exactly. I think what he's hiding from, and, and what we haven't mentioned here, is that it's, it, it, it's more or less known that virtually everything in, in this book is true. Um, that the woman that Qureshi left behind, that, that the narrator leaves behind is, is in fact Qureshi's own lover with whom he lived and did not have any, uh, and did have two children but didn't marry, who was his editor at his publishing house in London. And he was kind of, you know, raked over the coals there because everyone knew it was true. And I'm not particularly bothered by that, but I, um, because, I mean, if you marry a writer, and particularly if you're his editor and you know that he's a person who always writes about his real life anyway, you should expect to show up. But there's a way in which I think he's, he was anticipating that because by, by pretending to sort of lacerate himself, he's ignoring the fact that there's, there's an incredible element of sadism because he gets the last word here. He gets to make his wife, Susan, or whatever, I don't know what her real name is, just, just look sort of like a hopeless basket case who can't accept the fact that both of them are unhappy and the relationship really should end and he's the one who has the courage to leave, which is ultimately what it really boils down to, that yes, it's terrible that I'm going, but we both know I should and only I am strong enough to do it. Can I hear Claire Bloom starting a support group for these women? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you think it's valid to take into consideration the the truth behind this? 
Well, I think it's almost, this book really flaunts it in a way that, that I thought was, was, you know, a way of daring us to do something, such as, you know, I mean, I have a proof, I don't know what it says on the final book, but, but on the biography on the back of the proof, it says a couple of things about him, and one of them is that he's the Oscar-nominated screenwriter of My Beautiful Laundrette, and you sort of, you read about 30 pages into the book, and there's a, a sentence that begins, when I was nominated for the Oscar, and you're like, well, what am I meant to make of this? Because it, you, at this point, you're vaguely aware that he works in writing. You're not sure if he's writing mm -hmm. books, if he's writing screenplays. It just comes out of nowhere and kind of taunts you with it. And then about 70 pages into the book, he suddenly mentions his, all of his family in India. And before that, he hasn't mentioned at all that he's Indian or as we were discussing backstage, apparently Quraysh, he's half Pakistani. He just assumes you know, that, that we know this and he's kind of taunting us with the fact that it's all based on, on real life in a way that you know, is not examined, is not um, interesting, isn't messing with the truth in the way that, you know, certain people do. And, and yes, I think we have to take it into account at that point. I didn't think about it when I read it. In fact, I really didn't know much about it when, when it was sent to me. I kind of assumed as I was reading it, I wouldn't be at all surprised if this was completely autobiographical. But I wasn't, I wasn't troubled by it. Were you? No, I, I just think that it's interesting. I also did not know the facts of um, Qureshi's biography before I read this book, but it reads like autobiography. And then I was thinking, you know, there are, there are novels like um, A Fan's Notes yeah. by Exley or The Blood of the Lamb by Peter DeVry. I mean, all those sort of very autobiographical novels and you're reading them and you're thinking, this happened, this right. is not fiction. And you know, it has a sort of pressure behind it. It's not, um, it's not considered and worked over and polished. It doesn't have that sort of leisurely narrative flow that, that a crafted novel does. And it announces right. itself to you as a confessional. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just sort of interesting to, to think about what are the qualities of writing that give it away. Yeah, well, what do we think about really all these bad aphorisms? Um, is Qureshi proud of, of having written, I will set the record crooked? or it is easy to kill oneself off without dying, or my favorite, the world is a skirt I want to lift up. Really? Uh, my favorite was I like to write with a soft pencil and a hard dick, not the other way around. <laughs> um, I, mean, do, I mean, do we think that he's proud of these? Or? Um, he says I like to write with a soft pencil and a hard dick, not the other way around. It's I very think that they were all part of his sort of, I mean, he's drinking and smoking dope throughout this evening, that they were part of this sort of, quasi-self-aware, self-pity, you know, that, that it was, it was he, him performing for himself and that mm -hmm. those lines came out of that performance, that there was some self-consciousness about it, even about their sort of dopey quality. When I read a book, I really like to feel that I know what the imperative of the book is. And I didn't really know that here. I mean, in a way, if you're looking at it as autobiography, is it a kind of peculiar, twisted apology to the woman he left in some way? That this is what was going on inside? This is what you didn't know? I think it's a call for a witness. I no. mean, and, and that goes back to the contract between the writer and the reader. And they're both actually requests for witnesses, witnesses to their, inter their interior lives. In that this sense, they're quite successful, both I think. Of them. Yeah, yeah, very much so. This is who I really am. And uh, mm. you know, I'm I'm really sort of a conventional woman who right. uh, is tempted by passion, but but I with can't you, go, I can tell you all. Right, yeah, I can't yeah. go quite far enough. I I flirt with it. I've flirted with it enough to damage my family and to sort of crack my marriage and.
try my saintly husband, but ultimately I pull back and the Qureshi is in a, a request to witness him as, you know, sort of a, a selfish, um, philosophical, uh, talented, artistic person who has a need for passion in his life and like everybody else who gets mm -hmm. married discovers that family life is actually not conducive to intimacy or passion, so he's gonna go find it somewhere else and he's calling for witness. And that's but what I, that's what I, I mean, it's a very self-justifying justif kind of very call. Very much. You know, and, I, and at the end it's almost a dare because what he really says is, you know, that, that only two things What's kind of matter to him. Well, the dare is to say that, say that I'm wrong. Say that, you know, he's kind of asking you because, because he mocks himself the whole time through. That but I'm he, wrong but he, that, I'm that I'm wrong to leave her. That, oh. that I'm wrong to leave her because he mocks himself the whole time through for, for, his, for his fickleness, for the fact that he is um, in late middle age, that he's fa he makes fun of his appearance and everything else, but that he still, you know, kind of is constantly chasing women, you know, picks lunch spots, you know, based on the quality of women who walk by so that he can look at them and all this. But he basically says, you know, tell me that I'm wrong for, you know, I don't love the woman I live with and, and I want, you know, I'm not too old for good sex you know, and, and tell me that I'm wrong to leave. And it's kind of this dare um, that, that goes, I think, you know, it's to the reader. And also there's a quality of his, um, we, can, we can condemn him for everything else, but you can't say I'm dishonest. You can't say I'm not being honest about who I really am. This is right. me with all my warts, with extra warts. But then why call it a novel? Well, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's actually the most... Because that's I, I think Karishi, I think, in thinks himself superior to the character in, in this book. I mean, I, I think he, Karishi is sort of gazing down or holding up with contempt um, this figure. I think he thinks he's uh, morally superior, has greater vision, sees through this guy and is presenting this guy as a, uh, you know, a, an exemplar of uh, all that's wrong with um, contemporary society. So, you, so you're saying there's a real separation between the the voice between the authorial voice yeah, and the character. Yeah, I think he's still he's and but I don't buy that Koreshi is superior to this guy. But I think he wants us to believe that he is. But uh, if he's trying to create sort of an everyman, then why use all the details of his own life? I guess novelists do that, don't they? I mean. Uh, well, usually with a little bit more. Well, the, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting how he doesn't actually. I mean. He sort of goes to great lengths not to create any kind of narrative. I mean, he sets the whole thing on the night that he's leaving. In there are so very few flashbacks, and most of them actually are concerned with the woman that he's had an affair with that may or may not be over with. But for example, we don't know how they met. We don't know. Um, we don't know why they ever loved each other. We don't know at what point they no longer loved each other. Um, it's 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 one of those funny things. Like it's very hard to care about the fact that he's leaving her when it seems that as though he never loved her. Not um, only that, but they're not characters. And that's one of the main differences between yeah. the two books, too. I mean, and I, I'm not saying that critically, actually, even here, because I, he's not attempting and failing yeah. to make characters at all. I mean, I think I, I actually liked a lot about this book, and I think that there was an urgency and a steamrolling quality that, that created its own imperative, you know. Whereas Sue Miller is much more concerned with, you know, what we call rounded characters in, in writing workshops or fully fleshed out characters, that they seem to have a life. She goes into the corners of their lives and she, cre you know, she creates that. It's deliberate, but it's deliberate on his part to have the absence of that. So how can you, in a sense, care? You only can look at, that, look at it in terms of your own life. And what if I left 
my children. You know, it's about the humaneness or lack of humaneness, really. You know, and yet, I felt that in both books, the only character that had any real weight was the narrator, and that the people around them were foils created to reveal yeah. different aspects strange of the satellites. narrator. I don't, I don't, I didn't feel that I understood Dana because I really did believe that she was a construct. She looked like right. the narrator. She. Who there, was she? What was special about her? I mean, she could, No, she was very you, special, but we don't know why. Yeah. No, but you uh, felt that the writer. She was a good lay, is, is what really seems to be the thing. I mean, passion, every man wanted yeah. to sleep with her. It, it, you know, um, I mean, the, exalt, I think the exalted way to look at it is passion, and, and the more mundane way is just to say that, you know, she seemed to be so good in bed that, that, that Eli was, you know, when she spurned him, had to kill her. Right. Um, and that, that seems to be but all we Eli get from her. But Eli doesn't seem like a really real person, and I also didn't fully believe in Daniel, Daniel because he was... But I'd sure like to meet him. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, what, the scene, you know, it, when, when Eli, having, having seen her, you know, having seen now Joe one time in 30 years, and that's basically to tell her to kill, he, he, they meet because his dog has become paralyzed, and what what is a sort of terrible foreshadowing is, is she says, well, you can keep the dog alive for many years if you just, you know, but you're going to have to relieve his bladder for him and you're going to have to wheel him around on a trolley and everything else, or you can kill him and, and, and euthanize him. And he says, kill the dog. <laughs> kill the dog as he killed, as he killed the woman um, because he likes things whole and that can, can love him. Well, it um, takes a week to decide. And so, so he sees her no, this he one time no, and he then he, yeah. he sort of agrees to meet her again. And I get, they have coffee one time and then they meet in the hotel. And then, and then he tells her that he killed this woman. And, his, and the sort of thing that he says is, well, I have now like, invented this process that will enable all of these drugs to cross the blood-brain barrier, which will make the treatment of arthritis and, and, this, and this and that all a possibility. And I feel the good that I have done has outweighed the bad. And, and Sumiller sort of puts this out and asks us, A, to believe that, that any person would think this, and B, that a man who has actually killed a woman would sort of sit down across a coffee table in a, in a hotel bar and confess it and offer this as an excuse why she shouldn't turn him in. I was disappointed. Um, I was really disappointed when, when it turned out that this was a mystery and that was yeah. solved. I like the idea of an unsolved mystery because most, mm -hmm. murders, most murders are not solved. I mean, it was supposedly a break-in. And the idea that people, what's more interesting to me is people who are joined together by a kind of senseless act that could never really be resolved or understood and, and how that's affected their lives in several ways. Which is why I brought up the Ian McHugh and Enduring Love because right. that's how those two people right. who end up being linked by erotomania, which right. actually is also less interesting than what appears <coughs> to be their original right. link, which is right. that they've shared this incredibly traumatic it's two characters, and this is a, obviously a novel that we're not supposed to be talking about, but um, two characters witness this terrible balloon accident, and it appears at first that this is their bond, and right. the novel gets much less interesting after you find out that one of them is an erotomaniac, right. and that's what the bond is. Right. I mean, I think a lot, a lot of novels benefit from having sort of tabloid crimes at their heart. I mean, Anna Karenina, Love Triangle, you know, someone run over by a railroad train. You could say that's a tabloid crime that turned out to be something more, but I think this one uh, loses something from having the tabloid crime, from having it a murder. I was Definitely. loving this book, in a way. I was loving the details of the veterinary clinic. I was loving even the, the, you know, the way she would describe arguments with the husband. I mean, she's really good on describing how arguments sort of smolder and then burst out. I mean, that interconnectedness is really good. And then suddenly, whoa, this big you know, murder revealed, and it, it becomes less, although, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't like uh, really relevance, but 
am I being unfair in thinking this kind of Clintonian resonance in Eli's apology, like I committed this crime 30 years ago, but I've been such a great guy since then, <laughs> we should forget about it? I, I didn't go there. I, 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 <laughs> well, I mean, I think one of the things that she's suggesting is that both of them are committing crimes of passion. Um, you know, both of them have followed their heart in to different ends. And what she does is, and what she essentially does is say that you should never do it because it always ends badly. You know, in the worst case scenario, you will kill the, the person that you love. Um, and, and in the sort of the lesser worst case scenario, you know, you alienate the good Daniel who has done absolutely nothing whatsoever to offend you. These are both um, really conservative novels, aren't they? Finally, I mean, they are. incredibly conservative. They are, I mean, they just argue against. And then, I think then there's the twins. She has. She has twin daughters, one of whom is like right, good. Susie and Cream Cheese, who goes uh, to work, and, and the other one is this wild sort of... Shaves her head and joins a rock band. Yeah. But um, you know, there's, a, there's almost a sweet quaintness to the views of things like the 60s and like the daughter, this is rebellious. Yeah, when they describe it as a commune, it truly is just people who happen to be not old living in a house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. in a period of time that's gone. And they're not, they're not activists, no one is a weatherman, no one is an SDS, yeah. you don't they hear do any... They don't mention the right. world at all. Yeah. I mean, they work in bars or they have jobs, you know, one's a graduate student. They they, yeah, <laughs> well. Um, one, one wears a skimpy cocktail waitress costume. That's true. But I, I mean, I feel like. They paint their rooms wacky colors. But it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. What, I think what Sue Miller trades in a way, I mean, I was enjoying the book a lot. I was surprised when it, when it came down to that shocking revelation. I was surprised. I was shocked by it, but I was shocked by it as a writer as a choice that a writer would make. It would be a much subtler book if it really, if it didn't have that in a way. Think, it's yeah. like yeah. it would be a, an interesting book about the ways in which our dissatisfaction could be taken, you know, can be acted upon or not, and how not acting, you know, not acting upon things is often really much more interesting. Whereas the Hanif Qureshi book is about, I'm going to act on it, I'm going to act on it. But he's filled with, I don't, not ambivalence, but you see that you track his thoughts. He's filled with self-consciousness. It's like it's almost like a prepared um, Freudian stream of consciousness. I mean, it's not stream of consciousness at all. It's cleverly prepared in a sense. Um, but I think I think for Sue Miller, the notions of sort of not the you know well the Good Mother, her first novel, which got so much attention, dealt with this one moment, this one act, the couple making love in the bed while the child was there, and did that make her a bad mother? And ultimately, she lost the child. And that was the thing. And I think she's, in a sense, using that, I don't want to say formula. I mean, because I, I don't, I, I certainly don't want to um, be cruel to this book, much of which I like. But the same formula of that moment, the defining moment that could change the marriage or your life forever. And again, yielding to passion. Life is filled with defining yeah. moments. And novels are, too. Good yeah. ones, I think. That's what I took away from it. That's why. That, that's what sort of ultimately turned me away from the book, was as though there, there were only two choices here. There, there was this sort of, you know, right. this, this necessary domestic, civilized social pact of, of, of you know, you know male-female bonding, child-producing, honest, good jobs, tax-paying, you know, citizens, the whole gamut. And anything that threatens it, from, from the slightest, you know, I will meet you in a bar, you know, um, in a hotel in, in, in Boston, 100 miles away from my house, to I will kill you because you do not want to sleep with me, all seem to be the same kind of threat on the same compact, um, which, which right. really disturbed me. It was as though, you know, there, there was no other way to live your life than this. Anything, anything right. else, Yeah, there are no know, shades there. And the shades are what we like to read in, in novels. Um, yeah. I thought there, there, there was an aspect in which I thought there were 
shadings. Um, and I thought that was her consideration of the varieties of love, human and animal. Um, and uh, I think there's one line there where uh, her husband, Daniel, reproves her for you know, caring about animals the way other people do. And she says, love is love no matter where it lands. And it, and it made me think of um, this film I love, uh, Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven, about two warring pet cemeteries. And, uh, and I thought that was a, you know, it was a beautiful film about the varieties of love. And I sort of thought and hoped that was where she was going with all this right. veterinary stuff, but then she sort of abandoned it. Also with the children, too. I believe that she was a mother of grown children in this book. I, I, yeah, I, I really believe in the children. I believed in the sorrow at the children being gone from the house, too, and that that would catalyze something else in one's life, too. Um, yeah. yeah. Do we want to open it? Um, we would love to actually sort of open this discussion up to, to the audience. Um, I don't know if there's anything that you have or want to say if you haven't read the books, but um, it, would, it would be more fun for us if, if, if you wanted to. Well, all of you, or any one of you, um, thank you very much for the interesting, funny uh, discussion today. I didn't feel that any one of you felt very passionate about any of the books, and so I just wanted to know if you hadn't been asked to read it for this forum, would you have been compelled to read either book? I mean, did you really find something exciting and meaningful that pulled you? I'd say once I got past the opening uh, fine writing passage in the uh, Sue Miller out on the lake with the rowboat and all that, um, that yes, I, I found myself really liking this book. It wasn't, wouldn't have been a book I, I would have picked up by myself. Um, but I found, you know, that she's really talented and, you know, for about the next two-thirds of the book, I was totally with it and just sort of felt that the tabloid crime and the recriminations over the 60s sort of turned it into a morality fable when if she had just stayed with family happiness or unhappiness, um, she's really skilled at that. I think I would have been more likely to seek out this book, Qureshi's book, by myself, and I'm, um, and I certainly read it in a one sitting, and I, I didn't think it flagged at all. Uh, I probably, and there there are many things that I respect about this book. I mean, it's true that the narrator has an almost willful, loathsome quality, but. Um, I remember this book, and I know that I will continue to remember it, whereas parts of this book are beginning to fade in some ways. I, I probably wouldn't have read the Sue Miller on my own because I think I, like all the rest of the buying public out there, is, is I am subject to marketing, and Sue Miller is usually marketed as a commercial novelist. And there were many times in this book where I thought, she's really crafting this well, or she that was a beautiful sentence. That was just a really beautiful sentence, and she can really write, and she can write, um, she can write the kind of sentences that appear in literary novels. So it was, it was interesting for me to see how much 
not that there shouldn't be so many examples around me all the time, but how writers really are packaged and they land in the world and you have very little to go on as a buyer of a novel. So um, I'm happy to have read this book. I enjoyed the assignment of reading two books that I really knew nothing about. You know, when I was asked to do this, I, I deliberately didn't at that point look into anything about them. I didn't really know much about them. And, and there was a real pleasure to that, to reading something cold in a way that you don't often get to do anymore. Um, I found that I too probably would have been more drawn to intimacy, although after a while I became aware that it was a conceit. And I, you know, and it, and I, I was sort of distracted by the notion of it as a conceit. Um, the Sue Miller book had some of the, many of the pleasures of an old fashioned novel, really. Um, which I don't, you know, get to read very often. I, mean, I think of people like Dreiser, even you know, like this a story with characters and a world. The Qureshi book had no world; it was his world, and he forced you into this tiny green room of his. You know, um, so I think they were very, very different. And um, I hope we don't seem without any passion for these books. But um, there were there were different kinds of odd pleasures I think to be had in in both. And I didn't like either one of them at all, <laughs> um, which I, 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 was, I was trying not to say, but I'm so glad you asked because I really, um, in fact, I, I was bored terribly by both of them and kind of <laughs> thought that they were examples of, on the one hand, the Qureshi, a sort of cheap postmodernism where um, I can sort of trade on this whole idea of elision as, as somehow less is more when, in fact, I just thought he was lazy was trading on. I was familiar with the fact that the story was borrowed from his life because a friend of mine who was a journalist covered the story in London. So I had heard that part already and thought there is no book here um, other than kind of the ramblings of this man's mind. He is not bothered to invent a narrative. Um, he's toying with me in, in ways that I don't think are interesting, in, in ways that more skilled writers do toy with you, but I think in ways that produce results such as perhaps Tim O'Brien or Gertrude Stein. Um, and the Sue Miller, I think I, I just liked it precisely because it was so old-fashioned. And, and the pleasures that I take from reading old-fashioned or older books are books that were written at the height of a period. And, and Sue Miller was just kind of trading on someone else's style. I thought every one of the, card, the characters was cardboard and a type um, and designed to play a role in a story which was, was craftily and, and very predictably executed and foreshadowed. And, um, and ultimately, both books are very, very conservative and self-indulgent. And that was probably what put me off more than anything else about them. Um, I'm feeling so, really generous now. Um, <laughs> so. Yes, 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 yes. Are there other questions? <laughs> yep. She is, I mean, he, he grabs a, a butcher knife and, um, and in perhaps the most visceral scene in the book is not actually when he, he stabs her, but he stabs her through the cheek. And when the narrator goes to give her mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, 
that's when she discovers it because she blows blood out through the hole in her cheek. But he stabs her several times and he leaves her Many there times. dead. Um, Oh, oh, he confesses oh, yeah. it. Yeah. He gets away with it. He confesses it to the narrator. Joe. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, where was Charles Manson that night? Yeah. No, no, he it, did it. It's, a, it's one of those, you know, I don't remember grabbing the knife. Um, it's it's a blur. Yeah, he her. says, I hit I her hit instead her of I stabbed her. You know, he, he cops to it and, and just calls it, you know, a moment of passion, which of course he regrets, um, you know, but, but it, it just happened and, and there you are. Yeah. yeah. How does he want to convey his superiority to the character? I think there's one kind of sermon-like passage towards the end when he says, you know, we were, uh, 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 oh yeah, I don't know, oh, here's one. Um, the dream or the nightmare of the happy family haunts us all is one of the few utopian ideas we have this day. I mean, he talks about uh, how in the 80s, you know, we, we had our fun. I mean, I mean there's a, just, he's, I get this feeling that he's constantly breaking off from the narrative to sermonize, and it's Karishi intruding himself um, in, as a way of uh, telling us that he's morally superior to this guy. Yeah, I think it's kind of sloppily done because it's you know it, there's, there's overlap. Didn't see it that way. I didn't. Yeah. Um, I felt that it was a character, a man, going back and forth through ambivalence and self-justification and self-loathing and saying, you know, oh, I'm a heinous person. I'm about to break up this family, but there's no such thing as a happy family. That was sort of a something we all bought into, but still, I'm, I'm betrayed, you know, that he was going back I and forth. I thought it was I, I, feared to really uh, make the character, uh, he feared the identification with himself, and, and there were all these little signs of distancing from it. I think he feared to, like, go the whole distance and make a character so completely loathsome, you know, or as loathsome as he might be, and so um, he wanted to, he played it safe. But I that was an artistic decision, though. That, I mean, there's some very funny things in this book. With regard to sex, he's sort of a victim of sex. Yeah, I mean, he, he's like really led around by, you know, his sort of sexual organ. I mean, there's well, this like, feeling the of... Well, a skirt and I want to lift it. I mean, I thought that was sort of him, part of him poking fun at himself in that same way. You know, I'm sort of... Yeah, I, I felt that that was... Otherwise, it would really be unreadable. You know, who was who the loathsome character without, we, we were talking a little bit before about um, Patricia, Patricia Highsmith. Uh, I don't know if any of you know the book The Talented Mr. Ripley or any of the Ripley books. I mean, and she had these characters who were really horrible. I mean, he, he was a, a murderer, but he was so, such a fascinating character in so many ways. And it's, again, the, to do that, to pull it off in first person. What about Humbert Humbert? Well, yeah, but that's, see, that's a whole so other, I mean, he, he Nabokov had, so much more to work with <laughs> there right. by his no, own, virtue of his own gifts. Right, were, but I'm just know. saying that that is somebody who is both loathsome and yet we care about him. We, I, you know, he's not. Yeah, you know, there's something just so small time about this guy. You know, he leaves his wife for a younger woman. You know. I don't yeah, know. I actually, I mean, I think he's less loathsome 
than, than the book paints him out to be. I mean, I, at the end of the day, I think it's almost mundane. It's, it's simple, it's a simple fact of life that every day people fall out of love um, and you decide whether or not. And I, I mean, I would have been much more interesting if the story had started the day after, you know, because, that, because this is, instead of contemplating the disastrous effect it's going to have on everyone's life, let's see if it has a disastrous effect. Who knows, maybe, maybe she's really mad for two weeks and then she meets somebody else and is happy or she decides to raise the kids on their own and the kids shuttle very happily between their, I mean, it's, it's all speculation. That, that's kind of not grounded in anything. I thought there was something adolescent and almost touching about the notion of, you know, the possibilities for, of sexual love. I mean, it, it seems so adolescent, the notion, you know, was she at the bar? Oh, she called, you know, he finds out that the woman who he's interested in had heard that he was trying to find her and left her phone number. Oh, joy. You know, so he's, go he's going to see this woman. Yeah. Or perhaps a send up of the memoir and all the heartrending that, you know, I'm, has. I thought it was really in deadly earnest, actually. I mean, I mean, he makes many jokes because he's very funny, and I actually think when he sticks to comedy, he's very good. And I thought the reason why the book didn't work is because it was so um, just kind of completely relentlessly self focused and, and, and dead on serious. I thought he meant every last word of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, here's a passage where he has a friend say to him, Perhaps I hate to see a man I respect who is brave and dedicated in some ways and stubborn in others, blown about by such passions. Well, how is this guy brave and dedicated except that he has his friends say, you know, I mean. <laughs> well, he's dedicated to himself. Yeah, I don't think he wants, that's the interpretation. Of I it. think it's got a lot of winking irony as opposed to being truly comedic. Yeah. It has a lot of jokes, basically, and some of which work and some of which don't. I, like, I, yeah, I mean, I thought parts were funny, but I didn't think it was a comedy. In fact, I thought that it was a book that was sort of burdensome, and I found myself thinking about it a couple of, you know, a few days after I read it and feeling sort of yeah. sick. I mean, you know, the, <laughs> the first line of the book is, is, is printed on the cover of the book, and, and whether we should judge anything by that, but he says, it is the saddest night for I am leaving and not coming back, and I don't think... Um, although I think the line is overwritten and that nowadays we use the word because and not for, um, I think that, that he means it, you know. Um, he, he means it right there. He puts it in the first line. You know, it is practically a paraphrase of this is the saddest story I've ever heard. Um, and, and there, the, you know, it, this is a sad story. Um, if it was ironic, it would be a lot more fascinating. Why did you think it was a comedy? Must be being funny. 
think of something that's a comedy, I think of it as something that I laugh a lot during and I really enjoy. And then afterwards, when it's over, I think, oh, but it was deadly earnest. And, mm -hmm. and comedy is very sophisticated and usually is about things that are terribly painful. In this case, I found myself laughing uncomfortably here and there at the ironies and the jokes he was making. But at the end, I didn't, I just didn't take this as a comedy at all. And no. nor is the publisher of seeming to sort of present it as a comedy. I mean, looking at searingly honest, challenging and complex, <laughs> devastating, <laughs> uh, you know. Although they did say that about Tony Fields. And <laughs> um, you know, in his second movie, Sammy and Rosie Get Laid, because I followed his career and, and I liked his earlier stuff, he, I, I think he does what, what you're talking about, which is he, 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 this, the movie is a comedy and it's about a, a couple and they're trying to be incredibly contemporary and completely to sort of live out their political views and, and they're, they're communists and they believe very strongly in non-monogamy and what happens is the two of them both take lovers and it, and it almost destroys their relationship. And it's a very, very, very funny movie. And the final scene is of the two of them clinging to each other, sobbing, because because it has all not worked. And and it's just it's a but it's one of those movies that is a comedy, but it's a black comedy that's very serious. Whereas I think this is simply, for me, it was much flatter, and it was just it was an earnest book with occasional jokes thrown in because he's good. At the, he's really good at the one-liner. Um, he's actually less successful here than he is in most of his work, I think. Yeah, I suppose so, and perhaps I've just revealed, you know, uh, my own limitation and naivete um, in saying that. It was, it was really just an innocent off-the-cuff reaction to the question, would you have read this if you hadn't been assigned it? Um, and, you know, it, <laughs> it's, it's actually a conceit to sit here as a writer and pretend that I'm somebody who goes into a bookstore and responds as somebody who might be about to buy something that she enjoys. I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who's, who rarely goes into bookstores. I, it used to be something that I really loved years ago, but I don't go in. Um, I don't look for my own books. I don't look for anybody else's books. I get a, I, I'm constantly uh, subjected to thousands of books that I don't, as I'm sure all of us are, I mean, they just keep coming at us and coming at us and coming at us and we sort of flip through the book review and we see an ad and we see this, but we no longer go into bookstores thinking, oh, what am I going, is that just me? I, I mean, I, I, I don't. I, like compulsively impoverish myself in bookstores. I do too, but they're usually very arcane sort of particular things that I'm really interested in or doing research on. I mean, you know, some, strange book that I search mm -hmm. for for a long time and ends up, you know, I... I, I spend less and less time. I mean, I've, you know, uh, once you, when you become a professional reader and writer, and I, I've, I spend, uh, half of my writing is devoted to reviewing, and so almost always I'm re reading something that I've been asked to read right. or that I have to read, then there are the books that come for blurbs and all this, and 
Um, yeah, it, it becomes a, you know, we're pretending that we're average readers, but I don't think any, when, you, when you're a working writer, you ever are ever again. And I no longer. I don't go into bookstores to look at books. I go into bookstores for a specific purpose, um, to see if my book is properly displayed, to see if this book has come out and is on the shelf and I can buy it, or, or because I need a book on such and such. But I, I, you know, the pleasure that I think I once took in bookstores is now completely destroyed by knowing that so-and-so, because he will move 30,000 units, will be awarded three feet of shelf space, and so-and-so, because he will move 1,000 units. And it all, you know, I'd rather just, just call up you know, somebody and say, can you have them send me this book? Um, it, it, it turns I just into go that. into bookstores in order to take my book and put it under the display that says, Oprah has chosen. <laughs> 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 but I think one of, I think one of the reasons that um, maybe to some extent you've, you've, you feel that there's less of a <coughs> disparity between so-called bestsellers and literary fiction is that there's frankly less fiction being published all around. The playing field has gotten smaller of what really can get published. There are wonderful writers who aren't getting published who used to be. Um, and I think that when something gets, a, different things do get attention, but there aren't, that, there aren't as many titles right. coming out. Yeah. And, and there is an almost capricious quality to whose paperback ends up trade size and whose paperback ends up in the smaller rack size. I mean, and yeah. many things follow from that. And um, you know, it's it's. I agree with you. There, I, I. It would be very difficult to adequately define a literary novel or a commercial novel. I mean, I hopefully, think it's every literary writer's dream to have their publisher decide <laughs> to sell them as a commercial novel. Actually, right. uh, oh, but, yeah. Um, just because to, to sell, to, to move more copies, to get more people to read the book. But I do think there's a huge distinction, actually. And when I scan the New York Times bestseller list, for every Toni Morrison, there are 37 John Grishams and three Stephen King novels and everything. And, and the gap is right. huge. And if, you know, if Oprah speaks or if some <laughs> radio disc jockey speaks and says that, that I really love this book, then maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe, you know, a, a young writer, like, um, Edwidge Danticott will suddenly, you know, break out very early, and that's very great. But usually, it's going to be formula novel that 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 comes out. Um, Sue Miller is a, is a very vague category because she's a lot smarter than a lot of the people that she's lumped with, and a much better writer. But I, I would I wonder if I would actually say it's it's literary or if it's incredibly well crafted formula well, fiction. And there's a, there's a number of people that fall into that sort of uneasy middle ground. Margaret Atwood, for example. Right. Um, Rosalind Brown. Tyler. Rosalind Brown. Yeah, yeah, you know, I hate to use the phrase women's fiction, but this is something we haven't really mentioned tonight. I was, I was tonight. using I know. the phrase ladies' fiction, and oh. I was getting yelled at for it. Well, women's fiction, the notion, <laughs> book buyers are predominantly female. I think everybody knows that. And they often will buy a book by a woman or about a woman, really, with a woman narrator. Um, and these are somewhat literary books that are. The, the narrative is fairly straightforward in these kinds of books. They're well written. Some of these writers have like a poetry background. You know, they're they're not dumb books. They're you know, just, you know. There, were, there was a hand somewhere.
had a, a, a very funny experience recently where I met somebody um, and, and we exchanged phone numbers and we were going to go on a date and he never called me and I ran into him a month later and, um, and he was very friendly and we were chatting and so finally I said, well, why didn't you call me? And he said, well, I went home after we met and I did a little, a little net search and I came up with a little story about you and it was all about you. You had met someone in a bar and then you wrote the story and you published it and I thought, I'm not going there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had to make a pact, you know, that, that I would not write about him. Um, you know, before before we could actually go out and have dinner with me. A pack. A pack. I do. You know, um, nothing nothing signed. But uh, but yes, you made me promise that I would not write about anything that happened between us. Well, I haven't given his name out, so. <laughs> Susan. Um, a book, uh, actually a trilogy that I'm, I'm in love with, uh, the first book is called Regeneration by Pat Barker. It's one of my favorite books of recent years. I don't know if any of you have read it. It's a World War I book about Siegfried Sassoon and his relationship with, um, it's, it's based on a real case with a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. William Rivers. And um, there are three books. The third one won the Booker Prize in England called The Ghost Road. Yes. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful book. Um, regeneration. I would start with regeneration because it is volume one of these three books, and it's just marvelous. I, I was just saying a few minutes before we came out here that I just read a book that's been around for a while, but that I hadn't um, read yet, called *The Master and Margarita* by a Russian writer. It's Mikhail, isn't it? Bulgakov. Um, incredible book. It was. It was one of those books in which I was in a state of mourning as I approached the last chapters because I just knew that I wasn't going to be that happy afterwards. <laughs> the Master and Margarita by Bulgakov. I think it's just been recently retranslated. It's, there's a vintage um, international paperback. I'm sort of a compulsive rereader of a, a few novels. Um, Charles Portis's The Dog of the South, which is about to be uh, reissued. It's been out of print for a long time. He's a great American writer, lives in Arkansas. He's sort of a recluse, but he's brilliant. Um, sort of, uh, it does him a disservice to say he's a contemporary Mark Twain. I think he's better than Mark Twain in some ways. Um, Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White. Um, it's, a, it's a Victorian novel that sort of turns Victorian uh, values inside out. It's so brilliant, destabilizing uh, in a way. I could read that over and over again forever. <laughs> and I guess the other one, that w the novel I probably read over and over the most is uh, A Pale Fire, Nabokov. Um, which is and um, I just kind of by chance um, have been reading a lot of, of, of 80s um, new narrative fiction, um, which I hadn't, I hadn't read since it all came out. Um, in particular, one tiny little book, which if any of you find it, um, buy and keep forever because it, it's uh, the only book that this writer lived to write, which is called The Zombie Pit by Sam D'Alessandro. And, uh, and I've been reading, um, rereading a lot of David Wernerovich, um, who is an artist, um, both of whom happened to die of AIDS. Um, and uh, the, it's the, the whole sort of, the five books that he lived to publish are all quite wonderful. His journals were just published as well, and they're fascinating. What are the books we all reread over and over again? Because we seem, are we all rereaders? You are, yeah. obviously. Um, yeah. 
I the, go ahead. To the lighthouse or something. <laughs> I read it every year. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Do you read it on the same day I do? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, have to find, I'll call you. I read to the lighthouse and the waves every year. Yeah, yeah. Um, Madam. I read to the lighthouse and, and the waves every year. Um, the Virginia Woolf. Um, it's just for me, it's where everything sort of starts. Yeah. Um, I read Madame Bovary every year. Persuasion. Um, um, I, I mentioned it before. Now I, I'm just doing it at this point. No, <laughs> I, I, I love Watership Down. We were talking about this last day. I, do, I really enjoyed the book. Um, Ford Maddox Ford, The Good Soldier. Oh, The Good Soldier, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's Great a, book. a fabulous book. Should we take another question? Yeah. Yeah. that he respected her for her ability to function, you know, that she was a highly functional person. Mm -hmm. And he portrayed himself and sort of didn't respect himself for his lack of functioning. On the other hand, his lack of functioning is an earmark of his being an artist and tortured. So there's sort of a, um, he's, is his respect for her real? I mean, he, <coughs> You know, it's the sort of kind of person that, you know, I, I never figured out how to work the Xerox machine. You mm -hmm. do right. it. You right. know, it's like, yeah, I, I just, you know, I make the originals. You can. <laughs> and there's, you know, again, there's, it's, it's an interesting paradox, which, which he doesn't ever address, which is, you know, he makes it very clear that neither of them bear any particular love for each other anymore, but that she will be hurt if he leaves. That, she, that for some reason, though she doesn't love him anymore, she still wants him to stay. And it's simply, it's taken for granted, and he doesn't ever tell you why. Um, it's one of the things that I think is lazy about the book. It's assumed, and I think, in fact, it is probably true that she will be hurt um, when he leaves. But, but, but that's one of the missing questions of the book that he never explores. Why, if she doesn't love him, um, if apparently, from the evidence that we're shown, she's well, never really loved him, why will she be hurt? But she's the one who has more commitment and responsibility. She's the one who's tried to fix the marriage. She's the one, or it's not a marriage, actually, but the mm -hmm. relationship. Um, she's the one who is more conventional in that she's saying that a relationship is something that has to do with commitment, and we're in it now, and we both have the responsibility to try to keep it together, whereas he's the one who... But again, why? 
you know, why? Well, it's, it's, we know, this is presented as a, as a sort of, you know, a priori trait of hers, but why? why? You know, that's, that's what I want to know. What makes her this way? Um, and, and what is the actual effect? I think this is like the, the novel's job. Otherwise, she becomes, you know, it's like in, in Sue Miller, this is the daughter who shaves her head and joins the rock band, and, you know, this is the woman who is committed to a relationship. But both of these you know, are very reductive but, books in that yeah. way. I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he's the artist, he's tortured, he's irresponsible, he can't help it, he knows he's a schmuck, but he's also an artist, you know, but, mm -hmm. and here I am, and she is less yeah, imaginative, he's, he's but she's by more... making her seem stolid, and, uh, you know, I mean, he gives her one moment of affection where doesn't she touch his face and say, you, or something like that, but that that's it for her, you know, it's like, such a, to me, it's such a, a shallow story of a guy leaving his wife for a young woman trying to make it incredibly strenuously morally complicated, you know, when it's it, not. It's important to him that men still are attracted to his wife, though, I think, that, you know, in almost like a way, like, she'll be okay eventually, that she's not, he's not leaving this really homely woman, <laughs> someone who men still like. Right. Yeah. Although, given his um, priorities, he never would have ended up with her if she weren't sufficiently right. attractive anyway. Right. He says at one point, I would turn around once, but I wouldn't turn around twice for her. Right. Right where he wants her now. And part and the reason why he won't turn twice is because she's aged. There's this way in which, you know, she's past her prime, you know, it's trading her in for the better model. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that excuses us. <laughs> Are there more questions? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, Thank thanks. You.